And then in the New Testament times, there was the case of fornication at Corinth, among other passages that warn about worldliness. We continue to battle that as a church and as individuals as well. And so we're calling our series simply, How Do We Know About Worldliness? We've talked about the understanding of worldliness. Last time we talked about how do we know what not to say. Today we want to focus on how do we know that dancing is wrong. How do we know that? What does the Bible teach about that? Well, let's get a reminder of how we determine right from wrong and get some foundational principles again. And that is we must accept that there is an objective standard. If there is not an objective standard, then every person decides for themselves what's right. And so I can decide what I want to do and what's acceptable. I can decide drinking is okay. I can decide homosexuality is all right. Or fornication is acceptable as long as I am able to make my decisions myself. But if there is an objective standard, which the Bible is that objective standard, then to violate that would constitute sin. We went further to establish, and in the very beginning, that we must verify what we hear. Despite what a preacher may say, what elders may say, or even parents may say about something being right or wrong, we must verify what we are told in harmony with the will of God and accept that indeed as our standard. Check all that we hear by the standard and then accept what is verified as indeed being the Word of God. And so our question today is, how do we know that dancing is wrong? Is it wrong to dance? Is it wrong to go to the prom? And so what I encourage us to do is in Isaiah 1 and in verse 18, come let us reason together. That's what we're striving to do is take our text, open our Bibles, and reason from the text as to what the text might say that has application to the modern dance. And we'll talk more about that as we go along. Why can't the Christian dance or go to the prom? And how can we say that it's wrong when there is no passage that specifically forbids that? We can't find a passage that says, thou shalt not dance. If the Bible did say that, that would perhaps pose more problems than you would think it would pose. And we'll say why that's the case maybe a little bit later. But how can we say it's wrong when there's not a specific text that spe specifically forbids dancing? That says dancing is a sin or thou shalt not dance. And why is it that some Christians see nothing wrong with it and in fact they engage in it and encourage that? How could that be? Why is that the case? We'll say more about that in just a moment. The world thinks of it as an innocent thing. In fact, it's a good thing to, to go to the dance. And is it wrong to go to the school prom? Is that something that's wrong for us to engage in that activity? And how do I know it's wrong? And how can I prove that? Because there are many who know it's wrong and would even state that it's wrong, but they have no clue about how to go about proving that from their New Testament. They have no clue what principle is violated thereby. And that's what we're seeking to answer. Let's go back to the book of Judges for a moment. And let's be reminded of this. This applies to various forms of worldliness that people often live like they want to live. In other words, it's quite often that people just do pretty much whatever they want to do. In the book of Judges, you remember the cycle of them going into sin, and then they were oppressed, and they were delivered, and then they go back into sin, they were oppressed, and then they were delivered. They go back into sin, and they were oppressed, and they were delivered, and that cycle goes on and on and on. Well, here is a summary found in Judges chapter 7 and verse 6, 17 and 6, and then at the end of the book, here is a summary of the period of the Judges. And that is, in the days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In other words, they did not have an objective standard. They had subjective standards. In other words, they did whatever they wanted to do, and they lived how they wanted to live. That's pretty much true of the days of the Judges. 
Well, let's go a little bit further. In Isaiah 5 and in verse 20, Isaiah talked about, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and put darkness for light and light for darkness, and bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, they have things reversed. And things that are wrong, they're calling it good, and things that are good, they're calling it wrong. And so they have a skewed standard. And I want to suggest to you that Christians are not exempt from that. That just because we're members of the church doesn't mean that we're not exempt from some kind of practice of doing pretty much whatever we want to do and living like we want to live. And so again, let's raise our question, and that is how do we know that dancing is wrong? And I don't want to stand before you telling you dancing is wrong and you accept it because I teach you that, but you accept it because of any evidence that might be given. And so how do we know? Well, let's start with this. Let's define what dancing is. And this is why, as I begin to define this, that if there was a text that said dancing is a sin, that may create more problems for you than you would think it would. And here is why. Let's define what we're talking about with dancing. The word dance, according to Grawler, it simply means it's a dance is an expression in rhythmic movement of an intensified sense of life arising from the inner perception, uh, perception that stimulates both body and uh, mind and body. Well, that's a little convoluted uh, statement. Perhaps the American heritage is a little easier to follow, to move rhythmically with music using prescribed or impoverished steps or gestures. Well, that's really not all that we're talking about. So what is involved in dancing when we're talking about dancing and when we talk about is dancing right or is it wrong? There are three basic elements and the first is the one I want us to focus on. When we're talking about the modern dance, we're talking about close bodily contact. We're talking about moving in rhythm to the music wherein there is a romantic atmosphere of lights and music and often revealing attire. The focal point I want you to see is that close bodily contact. That's what's involved in dance when we talk about what's wrong with dancing. I want you to focus on that. It's not the music within itself. It's not even moving with the music. It's not even rhythm that we're talking about, but it's the close bodily contact that we want to focus on that is violated by some principle of the Bible. Now, what is dancing? We're still answering that question. We're not talking about dance in the sense of to leap about with excitement. That's called dance. That's not what we're talking about when we're talking about what's wrong with dancing. If the Bible said dancing is a sin, and that's how it was worded, then somebody would surely interpret that to mean that if you even dance, for example, uh, if you were at a ball game and you're just dancing up and down because you're excited because the, the team scored, well, that's in violation of the text because they're dancing up and down. Or even sometimes an animated song leader may move with, with rhythm of the music and you say, boy, he sure was dancing around on the podium as he was leading the singing. We're not talking about moving about or leaping about with excitement. Nor are we talking about dance that is either approved or not condemned in the Bible. We'll come to this toward the end of our study. But there are numerous passages that talk about dancing. Psalm 149 is a case in point. Or 1 Samuel, David was dancing, or Miriam in Exodus 15, or the, 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 the celebration of the return of the prodigal son in Luke 15. There was music and there was dancing. We're not even talking about that kind of dancing. What we're talking about, again, is close bodily contact. That's the main point I want us to consider. 
and moving in that close bodily contact in rhythm with the music where again there is the romantic atmosphere of the light and music and oftentimes the dresses are tight and they are revealing which creates that atmosphere of the sexual appeal that we want to talk about. Now that we know what we're talking about with dancing, we're still trying to answer the question, how do we know it's wrong? Well, we need to define what we're talking about when we're talking about dancing. Primarily the close bodily contact. Now, what is the appeal of dancing? In other words, what is it is the focal point of dancing? And we're going to give some testimony from the world. I don't want to give you some testimony that it is the sexual appeal. And I want you to bear with some quotations because what I want you to see is this is the testimony of the world. These are not gospel preachers we're citing. These are not your grandmothers that are kind of updated and old fogey. But these are people of the world who make the statement, who have no interest necessarily from the standpoint of what does the Bible teach. They're just giving testimony. And so let's see what they say. Let's start with some people of the world. Here's one of the more worldly people, J. Edgar Hoover. Now, many of the younger people don't recognize that name. He was the head of the FBI in the 1960s. He's a very corrupt man. He was a very worldly man. Uh, far from being a Christian. But he was the head of the FBI. And here's what J. Edgar Hoover said. Most juvenile crime has its inception in the dance hall, either public or private. He's not a gospel preacher. He's far from being a gospel preacher. But he's giving testimony to what the dance is and, and what's involved in the dance. Well, here's P Professor Wilkinson from Chicago University. He said that dance is a system of means contrived with more than human ingenuity to excite the instinct of sex action. Again, not a gospel preacher. This is the testimony of the world. Sometimes the world gives us great testimony about something because they don't have an agenda in mind. They're not driven from the standpoint of trying to prove that it fits some pattern of New Testament principles or is in contrast to New Testament principles. They're not caring about that. T.A. Vorner, a former supervisor of the Dancing Academy in California, said, no woman can waltz well and waltz virtuously. You can't be pure and dance at the same time. Dr. Gibson said, among those who dance, it is noteworthy that very few girls spend much time dancing with other girls. Neither do men dance very much with their own wives, nor brothers with their own sisters. The secret of the popularity of dancing, or is it a secret, is the exciting sexual stimulation resulting from close embrace of male and female, whether that be with music and dancing or without music and petting and necking. What's the appeal? It has to do with a sexual appeal, a sexual contact. This is a reprint. Now, I recognize these dates are old, 1938, and then reprinted in 1950. But if this was true of the dances then, then we'll look at some pictures of modern dance and see if it's any different. This is from Ted Sean. He said another motive for the dance is sexual motive. The dance has always been used as a means of expressing sexual desire or as a means of wooing. We find the same sex motive in the modern ballroom dance, which is now degenerated into the dull and stupid forms. But it is a legitimate opportunity for contact. Now I'm compounding the evidence because you might reject one of these quotations saying, I don't think that person knows what they're talking about. But let's see some others. This is Arthur Murray. Arthur Murray may not mean much to you. But Arthur Murray goes back a number of years. He was a world-renowned dance uh, instructor and has dance schools all over the nation, in fact, around the world. And here's what Arthur Murray said. Well-renowned dance instructor. 
In an interview, he was asked, why has ballroom dancing declined? And Murray responded, saying, since dancing is based on sexual flirtation, and since young people have no problem with sexual flirtation, dancing has taken the backseat to the backseat. This only confirms what we all know, that dancing leads from the ballroom to the bedroom. That's one of the dancing tricks. Not a Christian. Not a New Testament Christian. And yet he's saying that's the nature of the dance. Dr. Marker, Mark Wanzer said in his article on Why Not Tonight, Think about activities that lead to sex. A dark, crowded room with the whispers of delight, the dance floor, the proven place for a struggling couple, a romantic dinner with the band candles and the right foods. Let's keep going. This is a quotation. Let me get ahead to get to who this is. This is Louis Guyon, owner and operator of one of Chicago's largest ballroom uh, dance, dance halls. I won't read the entire quotation. But he said, we're all men and we know the natural desires of youth. We know that sex is the strongest impulse implanted in the human race. You can picture the effect on a boy and a girl of 18 or 20 when the hunger is the keenest and when knowledge and experience is lacking in formation and judgment and one of the dances that call for close abdominal contact and suddenly bring the cheeks together and entwine the limbs. There is but one reason left for the popularity of the dance, and that is sex appeal. And he goes on with his quotation making that point concerning the nature of that. And those who are blind to that indeed are blind to what's going on, as he says. Here's the medical, American medical, um, medical review of America. There can scarcely be any doubt that dancing came about as an adjunct of sexual stimulation. And on we go. The New York Times Magazine, the drawing power of the disco attributed its progressive sexuality and the promoters pinpointing sex appeal as the lifeblood of the fad. And we go on and on. Arthur Murray again that I don't think of the ballroom dancing will ever return to its popularity. People have always thought it's a prelude to sex, but people don't need the prelude anymore. And on we go with those quotations, and I won't give every one of those. What's the sex appeal? I mean, what is the appeal? It's a sexual appeal. And we learned that from the testimony of the world. Those were not gospel preachers. Those were not members of the church. Those were not your grandmothers. That's the people of the world. Now, I want to suggest to you that if you remove the sexual appeal from the dance, you'll kill the dance. You remove, let's say you have a dance, a prom, and you force them to separate and have no close bodily contact. You stop all the lewd movements, and you stop boys dancing with girls. And what you've just done is you have killed the dance. If you stop the music, the same actions would be called petty. If teachers walked into a room and found some couples, close bodily contact, doing the same thing, but there is no music, and it's not on the dance floor, they would, they would send them to the principal's office because they're petting. But you put music with them, put it on the dance floor, and we call it dance, and we give our approval to that. I want to suggest to you that many parents send their daughters off with a young man to the prom and they think that's okay and they're so proud because they're gone to the prom. But if they caught them in their living room engaging in the same action, they'd send the young man home and wouldn't tolerate that action. What we're suggesting is that has sexual appeal. Now what if you were to walk into a room and you saw boys dancing with each other? And you didn't see boys and girls, but you saw a bunch of young boys and they're all dancing with each other. And there's the close bodily contact Would you kind of think maybe they were gay? What would give you that clue? 
What would make you think that? If there's not some sexual thing going on, or if there's not some sexual appeal, what would give you the clue when, when two guys are hugged up and they're dancing in the fashion that boys and girls do at the prom or at the modern dance, then what would give you the clue that they might be gay? Why would you think that? Here's some pictures from modern day proms. Here's the close, inappropriate bodily contact. And we're going to look at some scriptures that tell us what's wrong with that close bodily contact that's inappropriate like you see at the modern day prom. What's wrong with that principle? So now let's talk about Bible principles. So what we've established are some things that we may find from secular sources. We need our Bibles now. So get your Bible open and let's open up to some New Testament text. Let's talk about what's wrong. Let's start with Luke 7. Let's go there. Here's what we've seen. We've defined what dancing is. The secular sources can tell us that. We've talked about what the appeal is. The world can tell us that, and they did. Now we need to see, does that fit anywhere with the Bible? Our question is, how do we know that what we just talked about is wrong? Let's talk about principles that, are con that condemn the dance. Now let's forget about dancing for a moment. Let's talk about how the Bible teaches for a moment. Let's go to Luke 7. You've seen this before. You've heard this before. We need to drive this point home. The Bible does not always tell us specifically, listen to me carefully, the Bible does not always specifically say thou shalt not or this action is wrong. Sometimes the Bible merely gives us evidence from which to draw the conclusion. That happened in Matthew 19, by the way. That happens right here in chapter 7. The disciples of John, are you reading with me now, beginning at verse 18. The disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John called two disciples to him and sent them to Jesus saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And when the men came to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you saying, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And at that very hour he cured many of infirmities, affliction, and evil spirits, and many blind he gave sight. And Jesus and said, Go and tell John the things you've seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. I want you to get the picture. They came to Jesus asking a question. What was the question? Are you the coming one? But Jesus did not give a direct statement. He did not say, Yes, I am the coming one. He did not say, yes, I am. You go tell John that I said, yes, that's an affirmative. I absolutely am the coming one. He never gave a yes. He never gave a direct answer. Rather, he gave evidence from which to draw the conclusion. Now, what was the question? Are you the coming one? His response was he worked miracles. They could have easily walked away saying, he ignored our question. I don't know what, he, what the answer to that is. He ignored us and started doing stuff like working miracles. I don't know what we're supposed to get from that. Well, they understood the question was given this response of working miracles. Their conclusion was these miracles give us evidence to draw the conclusion that He is the coming one. You see how the Bible teaches? The Bible doesn't always teach by direct statement. Sometimes it gives you evidence from which to draw the conclusion. Now, the Bible nowhere, listen to this carefully. The Bible nowhere says dancing is wrong. The Bible does not specifically say, and I quote, that close bodily contact with a person of the opposite sex is sinful. But it gives us evidence from which to draw the conclusion. What kind of evidence? Well, let's begin looking at that. Let's talk about this word lascivious. If you're reading from the King James translation, you'll find the word lascivious repeated numerous times. The New King James may use the word lewdness. 
Same word, translated lewdness. If you're reading from the English Standard and the American Standard and some others, you may see the word sensual or sensuality. Same word. Let's talk about what this word means. Let's define it. Let's get the picture now where the Bible uses this term that is translated lasciviousness or lewdness. Let's, let's get the passages that condemn it. Start in Galatians chapter 5, beginning at verse 19. Galatians 5 and 19. These are the works of the flesh. And notice at verse 21, those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So this is sinful, whatever lasciviousness is, it's sinful. It'll keep you out of heaven. But one of the sins is that of licentiousness or lewdness. Notice at verse 19, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, licentiousness or lewdness or sensuality. Same word. All right, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3, same word. This time we spent enough of our life, uh, past life doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in licentiousness and lust. Here's that word licentious, lewdness, sensuality. Same word. We're doing a word study. Romans 13 talks about have, that we spent enough of our lifetime, uh, that is we uh, should walk in light and not in the darkness, but how that they had spent enough of their past lifetime. But he mentions again the sins. Turn over to Romans 13 and in verse 13. Verse 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry or in drunkenness, not in, here's our word, licentiousness and lewdness, not in strife and in envy. Now 2 Peter 2 and in verse 7 is an interesting word because 2 Peter chapter 2 and uh, verse 7 talks about the... Um, how Lot was fed up, we've just been talking about Lot, that he was, uh, the New King James says, that God, that God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed with the filthy conduct of the wicked. The English Standard talks about he was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. The filthy lives, the unprincipled life, the sensual life, one translation would say. So here again is this idea of sensuality. Now what does this word mean? It means, according to Thayer, unbridled lust, wantonness, shamelessness, wanton acts or manners. Stop there. Wanton acts, something that tends toward lewdness and lust. Let's go further. As filthy words. You could have filthy words that are lewd, licentious, sensual. Indecent bodily movements. You don't even have to be with someone else. There could be indecent bodily movements. You watch some of the uh, performers on television and the way they're dressed and the, the gyrations they go through, there's indecent bodily movements. That's licentious. It's lewd. It's sensual. That's our word. Thayer goes on to say, unchaste, that's impure, handling of males and females. You see, this is the principle that if you have a young couple that say they stop short of having a sexual activity, but they're fondling each other and they're petting one another, you say, what's wrong with that? It's licentious, it's lewd, it's sensual. Because that is impure handling of males and females. That's what's wrong with that close bodily contact. 
Now let's put that back in those pictures we had a moment ago of the prom. Here is that unchaste, impure handling of males and females. And here is those indecent bodily movements. That is the definition of licentiousness. Now here's how the word is used with reference to sensuality. Bauer, the New American Standard, so translated that way. The um, English Standard translates it that way in 2 Peter 2 and in verse 7. Sensuality, that which is tends towards sensual. It's used of lust, that which leads to lust. So if we could stop at this point, and the question is, how do I know that dancing is wrong? Because the activities involve sexual contact. May not be full sexual activity, but there's sexual contact of male and female, and that is in violation of the principle of lasciviousness. But let's go further. That's not the only principle that's violated. The Bible talks about fleeing lust. Let's talk about what the word flee means. We're going to look at some passages that talk about fleeing and running from lust. The word flee, according to Strong, like in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2, flee youthful lust. That's one of our first passages we're going to consider. The word flee, Strong says, it means to run away, to shun, or to escape. So if I'm fleeing something, I'm not seeing if I can get close to it without committing it. I'm running far from it, and I'm going in the other direction from that. Now, be honest. We came to reason together. Do you really think that males and females can get together in close bodily contact, swaying in rhythm to the music, and you conclude that your son or your daughter in that circumstance is doing everything they can to run as far from lust as they can. They're doing their best. They're, they're running. They're shunning it. They're going away from it. Honesty would demand that you say, no, they're, they're not doing that. Well, here's the passage. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 2. Flee youthful lust. Run from it. We're to flee lust. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Perhaps you have some marginal notes in your Bible at 1 Thessalonians 4. If you don't, this would be a good time to do that. And this talks about fornication. We're coming to fornication in a moment. But it talks about how to avoid the sexual sin. Notice at verse 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Same word for holiness and purity. That's the idea of seeking to be pure and fleeing from lust that you abstain from fornication or sexual immorality, depending on your translation. So here's number one. Look at verse three. You two are to avoid or run from sexual immorality or fornication. Avoid fornication. Paul, how do we do that? Look at verse four. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. You avoid fornication by controlling your body. How do you control your body? Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Not in passion of lust, you control your thinking. When you control your thinking, you control your body, and when you control your body, you, you prevent the sin of fornication. Did you see the progress? The progression? So the reason some people commit the sin of fornication is they're not controlling their, their desires. They're not controlling their bodies. They're not controlling their bodies because they're not controlling their minds. So these passages are saying we're to flee lust. Now honestly, can you think that those engaged in the dance like we pictured a moment ago, that they're controlling their thoughts, they're controlling their lust? Colossians 3 and verse 5 talks about putting to death your members which are on the earth, and one of those is lust. You put it to death, you kill it. 
You don't let it live. You don't see how long it can live before it becomes active. You put it to death. Here's the third principle that's violated by that. And that is we are to flee fornication. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and in verse 18. The idea of fleeing fornication, just like we noticed. By the way, 1 Corinthians 6, 18, flee fornication. Flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Here again is the idea. You run as far from it rather than running to that. Now, we don't have this on the screen, but Proverbs chapters 5 and 6 and 7 are three unit of, a unit of three chapters that talk about how to avoid sexual immorality. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, Proverbs 6. Do not let her allure you with her eyelids. Watch concerning the attire of the harlot, chapter 7 and verse 10. Now, let's couple all that together. If I'm truly trying to avoid the sin of fornication, why do I engage in activity that has a sexual appeal, number one, and then falls right into the traps of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. Let's go even further. Let's talk about another word we don't talk about a great deal. Nor do we use it a lot, and that's the word revelries, as it's used in the New Testament. Found in First, uh, Galatians chapter 5, one of the works of the flesh, revelries. Let's define revelries. Revelries, Thayer says, means this. Feast and drinking parties that protract till late at night and indulge in revelry. Well, that's true. That may not help us as much as Liddell and Scott. Carousal and merrymaking with music and dancing. Scott's Bible says revelings, revelings, such as feasts, were accompanied by, with music and dancing and whatever could promote hilarity and sensual gratification. What we're trying to, to list is some principles that are violated by the concept of involved in the modern dance. Licentiousness, lasciviousness, fleeing lust, fleeing fornication, and revelries. Now let's spend the rest of our time in attempts to justify the modern dance. Now, someone who, uh, who wants to justify dancing can never see the evidence that's just been presented. They can't see that. And they can't see it for the very same reason that those who looked at the miracles of Jesus and began to cry out, as we've been seeing in the Gospel of Matthew, we, we want a sign. We want some evidence that you are who you claim to be. Well, I know you work miracles, but we want a sign. I know you, raised the, uh, you, you healed somebody, but I want some signs. I, I want a sign. I want to see some evidence. They can't see it for the very same kind of reason. Let's talk about some attempts to justify it. There are those Christians who would seek to justify dancing with these kinds of arguments. That if I excite others sexually, uh, if it did excite others sexually, it doesn't affect me that way. I can control my thinking. There have been Christians who've argued that that may be true. What you just said about the sexual appeal, that may be true, but it doesn't affect me that way. It doesn't affect me that way, so I think I can go to the dance. Well, I doubt that's usually the case. We sometimes overestimate our strength. And maybe it is that you think you can go and you can have the close bodily contact and you're not going to have any thoughts that are impure. You may be overestimating your strength. You may be overestimating the effect it'll have. But even if that's true, you're not so affected. What about the person you're with? Could you be causing them to have thoughts that they shouldn't have? And could it have the same appeal that the world has given testimony to? Someone else justifies it on the basis, I can't control what others think. 
I just can't control what others think. By the way, Matthew 18 uh, would be one of the passages that talks about we're responsible when we influence another person in the wrong direction. Luke 17 would be one. Verse 1 and 2. We can cause another person to sin or, or offend in the sense, not that they are, they're bothered by what we did, but we, caught, we let them to commit sin. We're responsible in how we influence other people when we influence them in the wrong direction. But I'm more interested in this argument. And that is quite often it said men and women danced in the Bible times. We read about dances in the Old Testament, we read about it in the New Testament. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, uh, Exodus 15, Luke 15, all of those texts talk about dancing. And there was dancing in Bible times. Well, that's true. There was dancing in Bible times. There are four categories of dancing in the Bible. There was a religious dance. That seemed to be a religious dance in Exodus 15 when Miriam danced. I won't take the time to read that, but you can go back and see if that's not the case in Exodus 15, 20 and 21. Same in 2 Samuel 6 and verse 14. Seemed to be an expression of religious activity. So there's a religious dance, whatever that might have involved. There seems to also be an expression of rejoicing like in 1 Samuel 18 and in verse 6. There was also children, the play of children. Remember I played the flute for you and you wouldn't dance? Thing to refer to a game that children played where one would play the flute and the other would respond by, by responding with a dance. And then they mourn and they respond by crying. Some kind of game they would play. And so there was the play of children in the dancing. Job 21 seems to allude to that kind of thing. There was the dance that we noticed this morning in our Bible class in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 6 at Herod's birthday party. Salome, the daughter of, of Herodias, came in and danced. And by all indication, that was a lewd dance, a sensual dance. It got Herod all excited and decided he'd make some rash promise. Now, I want to suggest to you that the first three categories don't resemble anything like what we're talking about. I don't think you can find any other category of dancing. You, you find a, a passage that mentions dancing, it's going to fit in one of those four categories. And so let's take the modern dance. Which one of those four categories does it fit in? I don't think it's a religious dance, nor is it, does it fit 1 Samuel chapter 13 or 18. Nor is it the play of children. The only one it might fit would be the dance of Salome, and I don't think you want to put it there. So really the Bible dancing that you read about in the Bible doesn't help us to justify the modern dance at all. I would stay away from that kind of argumentation if I were going to justify it. Here's some quotations from Zondervan, ISBE, commenting upon dancing. Zondervan's pictorial encyclopedia says that while the mode of dancing was not known in detail, it is clear that men and women did not generally dance together. There is no real evidence that they ever did. Social amusement was hardly a major purpose of dancing. And the modern method of dancing by couples is unknown. Well, perhaps they're wrong about that, so let's check ISBE, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It said women generally seem to have danced by themselves. Of social dancing of couples in modern fashion, there is no trace. Encyclopedia Britannica said there's no evidence of couples dancing together, however, and that was to happen much later, probably in the province of the 12th century. Well, there's three testimonies to the fact that what we read about in the Bible times wasn't the modern dance of couples dancing together as we would think of in the modern prom or in the modern... And then I want to close with something that becomes quite sensitive. And that is the question, what if I go, but I don't dance? What, is there anything wrong with me going to the prom? But I don't dance now, but I, I won't do that. Won't you listen carefully and with an open mind and answer for yourself 
the questions we're about to pose. What if I go to the dance, but I don't dance? Let's picture a parallel. Suppose I, your preacher, one of your elders, were to be found sitting at a bar. I don't mean in a restaurant where there is a bar, I'm sitting at the bar. What if you got a report that's where you saw you were seen, or I was seen? I'm not drinking alcohol. I'm seen going into the bar, I'm seen sitting at the stool. I have friends with me and they're drinking, but I'm not drinking. I don't tell everybody that I'm not drinking. I don't walk in saying, I'm not drinking today, I'm not drinking today. I want you to understand, now I'm here, but I'm not drinking. I don't make a big scene about that. They'd probably ask, why, why, why are you here? But I go in and I sit down at the bar. It's not clear to everybody that I'm not drinking. Some of your friends who come by and said, I think I saw that guy that preaches for y'all. Sitting in a bar. What was he drinking? Well, I don't know. I didn't see him drink, but he's sitting right there. Everybody else is drinking. I'm right in the middle where a bunch of drinking is going on. Would you have a problem with that? I'm not asking, would, would the elders have a problem with that? Would you, you as an individual, would you have a problem with that? Would you raise a question to the elders? I don't know about this, about our preacher, one of the elders sitting at a bar. Would it leave the wrong impression about me? Would it, would, it, would it leave a bad impression of who I claim to be, a preacher, an elder, a Christian, be seen sitting in a bar? I might contend this. I might say, you know what? Sitting in that bar, there's more conversation and visiting and watching sports on the television than there is drinking. Now, drinking is there, but that's not the main thing. People are just enjoying conversation. And I went, and I was enjoying the conversation, and I was enjoying talking political things with all the people, and I just really enjoyed talking with them. But I didn't drink a drop. But they were, but no, I didn't do that. They, and all my friends knew I wouldn't drink. Do you think it would hamper my influence? Would you think my influence was diminished? If you say, well, yeah, I probably would. All we're asking is you to think about that with your, your own life. Just think about the influence that you have. How do I know dancing is wrong? By the definition of what it involves, close bodily contact, and it violates principles of licentiousness, lasciviousness, fleeing lust, and fleeing fornication. That's how we know it's wrong. That's how we know that indeed it is wrong. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?